I'm home. This is the Confessions of an Arcade Addict podcast, an introspective look into video gaming from the classic era until today. Now here is your host, Brian. Hey folks, what's going on out there? Brian here, and this is episode number 10 of the Confessions of an Arcade Addict podcast. Uh, let's see, gaming-wise, I haven't been doing too much. Uh, I would have recorded this episode a little earlier, but uh, my son brought home some sort of virus or crud or whatever uh, experiments are being made over in the uh, preschool he goes to, and it knocked me on my butt for, I'd say, probably about a week and a half. Only now am I starting to feel anywhere near close to human. Uh, I still have a lingering cough, and I can hear that my voice isn't 100%, so I apologize, and please bear with me. Uh, Let's see, gaming-wise, I went to Pinball Pete's uh, once by myself, and I took my son with me uh, last week just to let him run around, as usual. He loves that place to the point where he pitched a fit when it was time to go, which is normal for a four-year-old. But, um, so, yeah, I haven't been able to do that. Um, I want to make a trip up to Brighton, but my transportation situation is a little bit weird, shall we say, so I don't think I'll be getting up there anytime soon. Hopefully... I can get this situation resolved and I can start going up there semi-regularly like I was at least once every other week. And also, I can go out to several locations that I have scouted for Arcade Rundown and Arcade Review. So that's coming. Also, um, I'm going to get in touch with Greg Hansen of Arcade Impossible, and we're going to try to nail down a time for him to do an interview uh, for the show, so stay tuned for that. Um, I also need to get a hold of my friend Mark Ross, and uh, nail down a time to do a segment with him. So all of that is coming, and I was looking at my... Uh, episode list that I have planned out I have episodes going well into the 30s <laughs> so this arc- this podcast is not going anywhere if only for my sake of completion if it doesn't get any traction but I know it is because um, I see on my Facebook page that um, the podcast is gaining people who are interested in liking the podcast and so forth and so on. Um, for those who are out there listening, um, wherever you listen to it, be it iTunes or any place else, I think it's on Spotify as well as uh, Anchor.fm, which is the home page of the podcast. Uh, please review, rate, subscribe, all of that stuff because it gives me more motivation to keep this going. I mean, I've got designs for this podcast as I listen to a uh, on-the-road segment, which I'll be putting up soon. 
Uh, I have plans. I have all kinds of designs for this podcast to to keep it going and keep it growing. And, you know, you guys out there who are listening, you know, all I can ask is that you keep listening and also, you know, do, you know, all the uh, required, not required, requested stuff like rate, subscribe, all that fun stuff. Tell a friend too. Um, and hopefully we can keep this going into a, a respectable podcast, shall we say, instead of just a guy sitting at his computer desk uh, ranting and raving about all the things he used to do when he was a kid. <laughs> but anyway, enough of that. Um, I actually have emails, and uh, I have th- three of them, I think. Actually, I have two emails and a voicemail. I'm going to play, I'm going to read uh, two emails and I'll play the voicemail in uh, episode 11. Um, They're all from Mike Stewart. And full disclosure, um, I've known Mike for quite some time. Um, We used to, well, they used to uh, belong to a uh, podcast company that um, we used to all do various um, iterations of the Dungeons and Dragons role-playing game. Um, myself and three other people, we do one called Thaco's Hammer, and that's for second edition D&D. Uh, the guy who runs the podcast company, he does one called um, Roll for Initiative, that's first edition AD&D, and Mike and his wife Liz and one or two other people they used to do one called um oh goodness the name the name just went out of my head wow but um they used to do one for uh basic D&D and they went and decided to do their own podcast elsewhere and they're still going as as far as I know but i mean i've known mike and liz for quite some time and they're good people and i thank mike for breaking the seal so to speak Um, for emails. So let's just jump right into it. Uh, His first email, um, he says, Hey, Brian, just listened to episode five and I'm working my way through the shows. I had a comment, though. Everyone seems to love Galaga. Heck, when I played arcade games, I loved Galaga, too. But I first started with Galaxian and still my favorite game of the Space Invader-style games. Why does no one seem to have any affection for it? It's got the formations of Space Invaders, yet the single-drop attack foes of most other third-gen arcade games like Galaga. Why do you think there's little talk of Galaxian, or am I just missing it on the interwebs? And his second email reads, On a side note, because he was listening to Episode 7, he said, On a side note, my wife Liz still has her Atari 2600 in cartridges. We keep it with our RPG collection, alas, not played in years, though. Keep up the good work, Mike. Thank you again, Mike. I really appreciate the emails. Um, I remember when Galaxian came out in 79, people were playing it a lot. Because it was not only um, an interesting take on Space Invaders, um, or in that genre, shall, I, shall we say. It was, you know, it was full color, and it was a lot harder than Space Invaders in some ways basically because they all sat in formation high above where your ship was you had a pea shooter now to me that's any game 
uh, Space Invaders type game, which you can only have one shot on the screen at the time. It either has to hit a target or go off the top of the screen before you can fire again. That's my nickname for it. Um, Galaxian got its due in 79, but I think Galaga was more of a quantum leap in 81. I mean, I am in complete agreement. Gal Galaxian deserves its due. It really does, as one of the all-time classic video games. But I think, yeah, when Galaga came out in 81, it really eclipsed Gal Galaxian. It seriously did. Um, there are only a couple of uh, uh, video game uh, message boards that I belong to, one being Atari Age, and the second one being um, Retro Gaming Roundtable, um, which are both really good message boards for, you know, people who want to talk about video games and so forth. Um, I would suggest going to those. I mean, especially Atari Age, that seems to be a little more active, but there's a lot of classic video gaming talk on, on there, along with, you know, current video gaming talk, um, high score talk, blah, blah, blah. I mean, it's all there. It's a really good place. I would suggest that. Um, yeah, as far as the 2600, yeah, I still kind of regret giving that, giving it away. I really do. <laughs> I wish I still had it, even though I've got as many games as I could ever want to play in emulation. But at the same time, it's like, I still wish I had my 2600 because... Um, on my Facebook page and also on Tumblr, I follow a couple of people who are, and Instagram too, especially Instagram now that I think about it, um, there are a couple of people there who are serious game collectors and they're constantly showing off their collections. Um, and it's just like, I just sit there and shake my head. <laughs> I mean, I, my whole thing was, is that I only, when it came to gaming systems, starting with the 2600, going up into the next gaming system that I truly owned was the PlayStation 1, which then I moved on to the PlayStation 2, and both of those games, both those systems, I only collected the games that I wanted to play, that I really liked, and I just kept going from there, um, right up to uh, the last, the latest system that I have, <laughs> the latest, that's funny, because it's like, Oh, goodness, how old is the Xbox 360 now? What? Oh, 10 years old, maybe? Maybe a little bit less? Close to 10 years old. But, yeah, it's the same thing. And I just find that with each system, the games that I really want to play are fewer and fewer. <laughs> I mean, I think I only have, like, I'd say probably a dozen games for my Xbox 360. And the only game I play with any sort of regulation, regulation, reg, <laughs> regulation, that's pretty funny, regularity, uh, is uh, NBA 2K14. And, you know, I was on Facebook uh, a couple days ago, and somebody said, does anybody still have their PS2? And my PS2 still has its position in the entertainment center in my bedroom. Um, I have two old-style PS2s in my closet. They both have broken down. And I have a PS2 Slim in my entertainment center with, I'd probably say, I'd say probably about 
close to 50 games. Um, I think my PS2, I had, I think I had like 20 games for it. I'd have to go looking in my closet, you know, just to, you know, just to find them and find out what I had. Um, my Genesis, before my roommate stole it, I had probably about 15 to 20 games for it, something like that. But yeah, after my roommate and I had a major falling out and he said he was moving out, one day he actually did. I came home from work that day and my Genesis and all the games were gone. So yeah, thanks, man. <laughs> On the off chance you're listening, man, you know who you are. But anyway, um, but yes, once again, thank you very much, Mike, for your emails. Uh, give my give my regards to your lovely wife Liz, and I hope to I hope you uh, email again soon. And just like Mike did, if you want to get a hold of the show, you can email me at arcadeaddictbrian. That's all one word at gmail.com. And there also is a telephone number for the show. That is seven three four seven four three two four three three. Also, we have a strong, <laughs> I like to say, even though I'm only on like four places, but they're the big ones. Um, I have a strong social media presence for the show. On Facebook, just search for Confessions of an Arcade Addict. On Twitter, it's at ArcadeAddict underscore B. On Instagram, it's at ArcadeAddictBrian. And Tumblr is tumblr.com slash blog slash confessions of an arcade addict. Um, so yeah, there are ways to get a hold of the show and get a hold of me. Um, any thoughts you have on the episodes that I've recorded so far, any uh, things you want me to discuss, anything that you think uh, could help the show, um, by all means, don't be shy. You know, I'm I take criticism well as long as it's not, you know, mean. So yeah, just you know, let your fingers do the talking and we'll see we'll see what I can do to accommodate you. Okay, so let's move on and let's get underway with the show and we will go to arcade rundown. Good morning, Mr. Phelps. Your mission, Jim, should you decide to accept it, is to make Stefan believe Thompson's information. As always, should you or any of your IM force be caught or killed, the secretary will disavow any knowledge of your actions. This state will self-destruct in five seconds. Good luck, Jim. Arcade Rundown. The video connection. Okay, I have to preface this by saying this place wasn't an arcade. It was not. Uh, the video connection was a uh, video store in my neighborhood in Bridgeport, Connecticut. Um, it was a run by uh, a husband and wife, and their two kids helped run the store. Um, they rented and sold VCRs, TVs, um, movies, of course, and uh, video game systems and their respective games. Um, they had a wonderful thing where you could rent a video game out for $3 a week. And I took full advantage of that. <laughs> um, they sold games for decent prices. Um, uh, my 
thing I remember, the one thing I remember is that I got my mother to buy, um, buy uh, Defender and Star Raiders for me for my Atari 2600 from that place. It was $32.95 and $36.95 respectfully. And um, I couldn't have been happier when my mother did that because she really didn't have to. Um, yeah, like, she, you know, she really wanted to spend $70 on her, you know, to feed her son's video game addiction, but, you know, you know 1982, I'm a 13-year-old kid, what do you want from me? Um, I would hang, I would hang out there as much as I could, and I was always asking them to show, let me play this game for that system, or this game for this system, um until, you know, they would just kind of say, you know, okay, you're just playing the games, you can get out of here now, and I would, of course, um, but yeah, this place was a wonderful resource, um, I mean, I played almost every Intellivision game, ColecoVision game, um, let's see, games on the, uh, Texas Instruments 99 computer, which were really interesting games at the time, um, and just so on and so forth. I would do that all the time. Um, it was a one way for me to find out if a, a game for the 2600 was as good as advertised, because quite honestly, the video game ads on TV and in uh, video game magazines, and in comic books as well, um, they were kind of full of crap. They really were. And, I mean, all you had to do was look at Pac-Man for the 2600. And, yeah, you knew then um, just how terrible uh, some games that would come out for the 2600 were. Um, you know, uh the two kids who helped run the place with the uh, husband and wife, they were always cool to me, and they'd play games. You know, they'd play games along with me. Um, and, I mean, I loved the place. And they were good people. They were always nice to me, even when I was, you know, even though I, even though I was being slumming through the place at times. And But at the same time, when I had $3 to spare and um, there was a game that I really wanted to check out before I actually made the commitment to buy it that's where I went, I went to the video connection I mean, there was one time I was thinking about, I was walking home I don't remember from where, I think I went to one, of, I think I went to Cumberland Farms or something like that, and I was walking home I was coming down Beachmont Avenue and um I was thinking, man, if I had $3, um, I'd go to the Video Game Connection and rent this game. I can't remember what game it was, but I was just thinking about it. And I just happened to look down while I was walking, and there's $3 sitting right there on the, on the ground. I was like, wow, someone's looking out for me. And sure enough, I took that $3, I looked around, make sure nobody was going to walk up to me and, and claim that money as their own. I turned around, I went right back, right up to the video connection, and I rented a game for a week. <laughs> and, you know, I used, and I love that place. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, 
this is something else that needs to make a comeback in the modern age. Um, you have video get classic video game arcades making a comeback, which is cool. I mean, you've got Galloping Ghost in Chicago, you've got Fun Spot in New Hampshire, and so on and so forth. Even here in my neck of the woods in Michigan, you have the arcade in Brighton. And, you know, it it makes me feel good to know that there's the generations behind me are enjoying the games pretty much in the same ways that I did. I mean, it's kind of fun just sitting there. Uh, the last time I went up to um, the arcade in Brighton, um, they got their Dragon's Lair and their Space Space Age machines working. And it's kind of fun watching, you know, teenage kids who are probably influenced by Stranger Things uh, playing Dragon's Lair. It's really cool. It's awesome to watch. Um, you know, it, it's just one of those things that sort of, you know, lifts my spirits a little bit just to see it. Um, what else? Um, but yeah, I mean, the neighborhood store, whether it be, you know, your mom and pop video store or... Uh, like I'll talk about in future episodes um, when I moved to Florida um, my friend and roommate uh, she worked at a mom and pop uh, video game uh, store um, you know in this day of the one click and you could have whatever you might want and have it delivered to you within two days you know there's something to be said for supporting your local stores you know, whatever you're looking for might cost a little money, but you're helping out the community because more often than not, the people who are running these little mom and pop shops, they live in the communities that, you know, they have their stores in. So, you know, it's helping them out. That's just what I feel about it. So, yeah, that's the video connection. You know, it like I said, it's not an arcade, but in some ways it was almost as important, especially on the home video gaming front. So, yeah. Um, so, yeah, um, if you've got stories about, you know, a little mom and pop shop, you know, in your neighborhood that you used to go to and spend money at growing up, just, you know, you know, said drop me an email, uh, drop me a voicemail, get a hold of me on you know, social media, and, you know, we can at least, you know, share our experiences and reminisce. So, yeah, that's Arcade Rundown. From there, we're going to go to Top Tens. Top 10s. Top 10 arcade games of 1983. Okay. Um, going off of my memories of that year, 1983, I was 14 years old going on 15. Um, that summer was fantastic because you had Return of the Jedi coming out in May of 83. I mean, I remember, I think I saw it the, the opening night, and I went to school... Uh, the the following Monday, you know, just talking, you know, just talking with my contemporaries about it. Um, arcades, even though the crash was well underway, in you know, depending on what uh, area or what time of 1983 you're, you know, you're talking about, but the crash was either underway or it had happened, and you know, now the ripple effect was starting. The, the first ripples were coming out. 
Um, but even so, arcades were still doing really good business despite that, and good games were still coming out from manufacturers. So, um, I would say probably it wouldn't start to really, really seriously be felt until probably like late 83 going into 84. At least that's my experience. It might be different for different uh, areas of the country and for, you know, very, uh, for other people. Okay, so, all right, once again, these are a top 10 in no particular order, but um, these, I think, are the 10 best games that came out in 1983. Okay, first one up, Dragon's Lair. Now, I put this in 1983, even though I could swear up and down on a stack of Bibles that I saw Dragon's Lair at Spanky's in 1982. I, you know, I would swear on whatever holy writ you put in front of me, it was out in 1982. But I'll put it in 1983 just for argument's sake. Now, Dragon's Lair Course is a laser disc game from Cinematronics. Uh, the animation for it was done by Don Bluth, who was a animator for Disney for a long time before he split off on his own and uh, did animations for movies like The Secret of Nim and things like that. Um, this game, even though it was not quite as... I mean, if, if you want to be... To use a Dungeons & Dragons term, it's a railroad. There's only one way to get through whatever uh, situation you found Dirk the Daring, the main character, in. There was one particular way to get through whatever perils he was in, and that was it. But it was still fun to watch. It was fun to, you know, try to figure it out. And um, it's and the animation is fantastic. Always was. It's it's almost timeless in my in my opinion. Um, and with Dragon's Lair, of course, if you don't know <laughs> where you where have you been, um, you know, basically you're a brave knight. Uh, going into a castle to rescue the princess from an evil dragon. That's what it is. And it's just one of those games that is just awesome to watch. It's good to play when you know what you're doing. And, I mean, I loved it. You know, it was always a 50 cent or two token uh, machine, no matter where you were. Um... I mean, I've told the story before. Um, well, one of my aunts from Virginia was visiting, and the day she was leaving, she was taking the bus back down to Virginia. And so while everybody was assembled with her to say her goodbyes, I said my goodbyes to her, and I went up to the the uh, news corner, you know, which was like one block up the street, and they had a Dragon's Lair machine in there, and I proceeded to start to rock it. And it, I had the uh, the uh, walkthrough for Dragon's Lair in my back pocket because I knew we were going down there. So I knew I already knew uh, the video. Let me see the news corner had Dragon's Lair in there. So I'm like, I'm going to beat this game. So I'm going through it. I get maybe two thirds of the way through the game. I'm just going I'm just killing it. I'm destroying this game, wrecking it. 
and I hadn't lost a life. I mean, I knew pretty much every. I knew pretty much had memorized every level and every level that was reversed because that's how they made the game so long and you know and have it so huge. It's just they reversed, reversed everything, uh, reversed all the animations and all of the various uh, the various levels. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm killing it, and then all of a sudden I'm made to go home because um, everybody's going home and no one would listen to me and no one, and I said, well, I'll just take the bus home. And they're like, no, you're coming with us. And I'm like, oh man. <laughs> so yeah, that was Dragon's Lair. It's one of the, one of my all-time favorites. It really is. Elevator Action. This one is some a game I still play to this day. When I go to the arcade in Brighton, they have an elevator action machine there. And the funny part is, is that this is another one of those games, along with one that I'll be talking about a little bit later. Um, this is one of those games I do better at now than that when I played it when I was 14 or 15 years old. <laughs> it still kind of boggles my mind, but yeah, I'm a lot better at it now than I was back then. Okay, this is a game that not very many people know about. Exerion. This is a shooter from uh, Jaleco, which is uh, a video gaming company you didn't really hear much about in the early 80s, but you would hear more about them uh, when, the, when the Nintendo Entertainment System came out in 1985 and in subsequent years. They made the uh, Bases Loaded uh, series of games, which is a really good baseball game, actually. Um, but yeah, Xerion's a really... I love this game. It's one of the better shooters because it's one. It, it, I'm gonna have to do a uh, an audio experience for this game because it's gonna take me a little while to uh, explain it. But more or less, it's sort of like it's sort of like just as it just as a way to describe it. It's almost like a, a combination of Galaga and Gyrus. I think that's probably the best way for me to describe it, but the gameplay is much, much different. Um, but yeah, I'll I'll just do a, a set, uh, an RE experience about it, because yeah, it deserves its own segment. Uh, Gyrus. Um, this game was extremely popular when it came out in 83. Um, this was, like I like to call it, it was the circular uh, Galaga. <laughs> that's exactly what I would call it. It was basically your ship would move in a circle around the screen and various enemies would come out in formations from various sides of the screen or tops or bottoms of the screen and your mission was to go through the solar system to get to Earth. And as for the deeper in the solar system you get the more difficult it gets the faster the gameplay is and so forth and so on um i mean this was a great game the arcade in, uh, the arcade in brighton has it i mean i think i've only played it once since then that's something else i need to do note to self i need to when i'm at the arcade in brighton i actually need to play more games i get so so much tunnel vision when i'm there there's only like 
five or six games I really want to play with any sort of seriousness. I need to um, open up my palette a little more, shall we say. But yeah, Gyrus. Junior Pac-Man. This game was really challenging in a lot of ways. I mean, it, it's basically the logical step from Pac-Man to Ms. Pac-Man to this one. Junior Pac-Man basically is this huge maze that side-scrolls, or excuse me, or do, yeah, side, it scrolls side to side up and down, actually. I mean, it's this massive, massive, massive maze. And so, you know, you're Junior Pac-Man, and then the interludes in between levels is this Romeo and Juliet-style romance between Junior Pac-Man and... Um, Blinky's daughter, <laughs> you know this cute little this cute little red ghost, and yeah, it's I've never actually seen the whole story played out. One of these days, I have to actually play Junior Pac-Man just to just to um, see the whole story. I think I've gotten as far as the the second part, um, but yeah, it's really it's really cute and the levels are hard uh the ghosts are aggressive and you know it's a really challenging game to play it really is mario brothers <laughs> okay this one this one is where more or less mario gets his name and of course you have mario and his brother luigi they both make their quote-unquote debuts even though Mario was in... Uh, I take that back. Mario, he got his name in um, Donkey Kong Jr. That's right, I forgot. But Luigi makes his debut, and this game... <laughs> I have so many memories of this game, because after a while, um, after it came out in 83 and going into 84, um, my buddy Mark and several other guys were still playing it, but they play it cutthroat, which means they were trying to get each other killed, and whoever got each, got the other guy killed won the game. And there, you can play Mario Brothers like that. You can play it cooperatively, which is how it's originally meant to be played, but you can play it uh, cutthroat. And it was very interesting to watch um, and participate in, even though Mark was, at the time, Mark was a he was on a different level as far as video game skill went when compared to myself he was he was really good and um just to play you know those kind of games was you know play that game that way was fun you know because there'd be a lot of trash talk going on and things like that it was really it was really cool um pole position two of course the sequel to pole position um the car you're driving is much faster and there are four tracks um there's of course the fuji track from the original pole position they have a test track oval they have seaside they have a seaside track which is really hard they also have the suzuka they have the suzuka track i think that's what it's called which is um which is actually uh a formula an actual formula one track so um, the cars are 
smarter, they change lanes quicker, and they're a lot more difficult to get around, and, you know, it's a really challenging game. I mean, if, I mean, if given a choice between pole position, pole position two, I will take pole position two all day. I just like, I just like the feeling of it. It's a lot better than the original. Spy Hunter. Now, this game got so much, uh, so many players when it came out. I mean, everybody was all over this game. I mean, it was a lot of fun. I mean, especially once you learned out how to play it properly. Yes, it was a lot of fun. Um, basically, you're in a... You are basically a James Bond type, even though the Peter Gunn theme is prevalent throughout the game. Um, you're driving... Um, along... You're driving on a vertical uh, road sort of reminds me of Monaco GP in a way. Um, and you have various uh, spies, various spy enemies trying to kill you. You have the ones in the little coops to start that you can shoot with the, your machine guns and destroy. You have the indestructible armor-plated ones that try to run you off the road. You have the gangster limousines, which are trying to pull up even with you, so they can shoot you from the side and send you careening off, you know, into a burning wreck. Um, you have the helicopters, which basically try to fight, which basically try to line up with you and drop bombs on the road for you to hit the craters or get hit by the bombs and get destroyed. Uh, to combat all this, you have your weapons vans. Um, which is sort of a nod to Knight Rider. <laughs> you know, basically, they would be parked on the side of the road, and you would have to hit the center button in the control yoke, and it would pull, it would pull up to try to get in front of your car, and it'll drop a ladder, and then you just accelerate into it and drive into the back of it. And you had, let's see... You had oil slick, you had oil slick, you had smoke screen, and you had missiles. The smoke screen was the least useful, even though it kind of helped to get, if you were being pursued by tons of enemies, you could hit a smoke screen and just sort of get away from them. You had the oil slick was the most, uh, oil slick was the most useful because you could basically get someone directly behind you and just tap, and I mean just tap the oil button, just get a little slick out there, and that would send them careening off to crash on the side of the road. Um, let's see, what else? Um, then, of course, you had the missiles, which were for the helicopters. So that was how you combated that. And the trick was finding the proper pattern because as you would drive, it would split. The road would split into two bridges, and depending on which way you would go, it would depend on what weapon you would get from the weapons truck. So, while you're doing all of that, while you're trying to dodge all these spy vehicles and trying not to get destroyed, uh, getting bombed from the copter, you had regular traffic to deal with. So, you had to deal with that. So, yeah, Spy Hunter was fun. I love Spy Hunter. Um, 
the arcade in Brighton has it, but the problem with it is that it doesn't, it, I shouldn't say it doesn't work properly because it does. I think they just have the settings wrong. Um, the one time I tried to play it, um, I was always accustomed to, uh, when you were, had the car in low gear and you switched to high gear, you would accelerate crazy to where you would even see afterburners coming out the back of the car you know, things like that, and your car would go really fast, and it never did on, on the machine at the arcade, so I think they just have their settings wrong. Star Wars. <laughs> okay, I already have a Are You Experienced for this game. I have it all set. <laughs> I have it all written out, or at least in my head I have it written out. I just have to commit it to, uh, to a hard drive. But in a way... It was perfect timing for this game to come out in 1983 because you had Return of the Jedi come out in the summer, and this dovetailed into it. Even though it was everything from almost everything from the uh, from uh, A New Hope, Episode Four, you're in an X-wing fighter. You first start off uh, dogfighting with Tie Fighters. You know. Um, before you would assault the Death Star. Um, and then you would, the first level is basically you shooting TIE Fighters and you're out there dogfighting for a certain length of time before you would hear the music change and then the TIE Fighters will peel off and retreat to the Death Star and then you start flying to the Death Star. And the first level is basically goes straight into the trench, the trench level. And you basically have to shoot and avoid uh, fireballs. You shoot the gun emplacements that shoot them at you, so forth and so on, until you reach the exhaust port, which is at the end of the trench, but in the floor. So you had to put your crosshairs over the exhaust port and just keep firing until you know, you reached a certain area on the on the exhaust port and your proton torpedoes would fire automatically, destroying the Death Star, and that would be the end of the level. you go on to the next one. Um, as you progress through the game, the next level, after you finish dogfighting and you make your run on the Death Star, now you're skimming the surface and you are shooting at the various... Uh, bunkers that are shooting fireballs at you um the third level um is um now you have to shoot the towers on top you know, these deflection towers as they call them in the movie uh, they would just come up out of the ground they have white tops on them that would shoot fireballs you would shoot them and after you shoot shot uh after you destroyed enough of them a certain number you would get a bonus and you know get a point bonus and then you would go into the trench now by this point the trench is has walls and so forth and so on and it just keeps getting harder um i think by the third level darth vader's tie advanced fighter would come out and he's especially aggressive as you would think and um you know so you would just shoot you know just shoot as many of those tie fighters as you could and just watchwords repeat except things are getting harder and harder and harder okay and la and last on this list is tag team wrestling <laughs> this is a personal favorite of mine will always hold 
a special place in my heart even though there are wrestling games that I love more than tag team wrestling, but this was my first. Um, trying to remember where I first played tag team wrestling. Um, I want to say the first place I saw it was in at Milford Rack, I think. And, you know, basically it's a uh, English adaptation of a Japanese uh, wrestling game. And basically you're this tag team you know, this tag team that's going up against the evil tag team, which, you know, uses rule-breaking tactics. Um, you had to constantly engage with the other wrestler, and then a list would pop up, and Button Button would have you go through the list of moves, uh, going from stuff that does low damage all the way up to stuff that does high damage. Now, the trick was is that the enemy tag team you had one masked wrestler who was the same size as your characters, you could pretty much do everything to. Ranging from a head, a side headlock all the way to a back suplex with a bridge. And if he was low on health, if you did that move to him, it would turn into a pit automatic pin. And you would win and go on to the next match. The other guy was this uh, heavyweight you know, this really super heavyweight kind of guy, you could only do a certain number of moves to. You know, you could only go up to, like, I think it was the Enzigiri, the rabbit kick, if you would. And those were the only moves you could do. So you had to plan what you were doing and strategize and cut the ring off. That was the secret to beating that game, is to keep that enemy in that one particular spot and don't let him go until he starts trying to go to, across the ring to make a tag to his partner that's when you knew you had him and that's when you just kept you hit him once maybe twice more with moves and then you pin him and then it's on to the next one and you just kept going and going and the game of course would get harder and harder and harder and you know like i said it was it was really basic. I mean, you know, for a game that came out in '83, you know, what do you expect? But it was a it was a fantastic game. I loved it. Honorable mentions. Okay, uh, ten yard fight. This was a football game, as the name might uh, suggest, and you know, it was a lot of fun, especially once you knew how to play it. Even though the game would be extremely cheesy in some ways. And, you know, it was really tough sometimes to be able to extend the clock by getting a first down, which means you had to go 10 yards up the field and the clock is always running and it's running fast. So you had to get up to get the first down within the first two plays in order to uh, keep, you know, just keep the game going until you could score a touchdown. So... Yeah, I mean, it was a lot of fun, especially once you really learned how to play it, and it was always a challenge to just try to figure out ways to just keep the game going. Uh, Crystal Castles, classic game from Atari. Quite honestly, I don't think it gets enough love. Um, basically, you are a bear trying to fight a witch, and you are trying to you are basically of trying to avoid. Um, various enemies to get all of the gems on the ground and you know get all the gems on the ground to advance to the next level which has and that game also has secret warps in it so yeah you know um 
it was one of those games where I was okay at it, but I wasn't as good as, you know, Mark or any of the other guys I hung out with in the arcades. Okay, Discs of Tron. This is the sequel to Tron, and this is the one with the, um, with the disc fights, you know, the disc wars. You know, it it originally it starts out you're on a platform, and the enemy's on a platform, and you're using a, you're using the control stick with the trigger to shoot discs at your enemy, and you also have a dial on the other side. It was basically more or less the same uh, control scheme as Tron with a couple of extras, and you know, like I said, you're basically trying to kill the enemy who's on the other disc or make him get knocked off or whatever to advance to the next one. All the while, you hear David Warner's voice as Sark, you know, talking all kinds of junk to you while you're fighting and when you're losing you're getting laughed out and so forth and so on. Fantastic game. I was glad, I was very glad to get reacquainted with it at the arcade in Brighton, but they have since taken it out, which is unfortunate. Donkey Kong 3. Okay, this is, a, this, as you would think, is the third game in the Donkey Kong arcade game franchise. Now, all of a sudden, the script has flipped again. Now, in, instead of Donkey Kong 2, where your Donkey Kong's son tried to rescue his father, now you're uh, Mario again, and you're looking to defeat Donkey Kong, except there are um, um, a lot of insects <laughs> to you know, to deal with while you're trying to defeat Donkey Kong. Um, you have, you know, just various ones that'll come flying down to try and run into you. You have those that'll come down and go on various platforms where, you know, platforms on the level, and of course you run into them, you get killed, so forth and so on. Um, it was okay. I liked it well enough, but yeah, it was just, a, it was a little... I don't even know the word I could even use, but it it just wasn't what I really wanted in a Donkey Kong game, I guess. Um, iRobot. This game is fantastic. It's a vector game by Atari, and it's more or less based off the iRobot uh, book, science fiction book. And um, I remember my buddy Mark, who was, like I said, a really good video game player, he was borderline obsessed with this game. He would play it all the time. And I remember sometimes we would play doubles, and you know, he was so far ahead of me as far as gaming talent went. Um, you know, he would be, like, several levels ahead of me, and I'm still trying to get through the first couple of levels. I mean, he's, like, six, seven levels ahead of me at that point. And it was a hard game. I do remember that. It was a really hard game. But it was beautiful to watch. It was pretty decent to play. It, I just wasn't very good at it. You know, especially compared to someone like Mark. Um, Journey Escape. <laughs> this one, man. I mean, I love this because it was just awesome to play. I still play in an emulation every once in a while just, just to get a kick out of it. Um, you're basically the five members of the bands of Journey and... You're basically going to different worlds, and depending on which world you go to, you're one of the band members of Journey, and you've got to get through the, get through 
one half of the, a level to get to his instrument and then you have to use that instrument to get yourself out of that level you know and you know it's very basic but it's still a lot of fun to fun to play um it was really it was cool to watch too the trouble mall arcade game i mean had this game so it was cool to watch crawl <laughs> this was a uh movie tie, uh, tie in with the movie crawl which was really fun um you know basically you are the main character in the movie and you're trying to assemble pieces of the glaive so you can go up against the beast at the at the end of the level and rescue the princess and it was really interesting i loved the game it was fantastic um spanky's had this game and actually trumbull mall arcade had it too so you know it was in it was in evidence. As a matter of fact, I think Milford Rec had it too. Either Milford Rec had it or um, the arcade at Connecticut Post Mall had it. I know one of those two places also had it. But yeah, all three of the main arcades I went to had it at one point or another. Um, Mach 3. This was a, another laser game. Um, Trouble Mall had the sit-down version of it, which was fantastic because if I was bumming out in the arcade and nobody was playing this game, I would sit down in it to rest my feet. <laughs> you know, because, yeah, when I would go through the mall and go to the arcade, it was an all-day thing, and I'm on my feet a lot. So, yeah, I would just sit there and pretend to play it. Um, this game was 50 cents, I remember that. Um you're basically in charge of an F-15 fighter. There are two games you can p pick from. One is the um, third-person view, where you're flying an F-15 Eagle, um, and you're basically taking out ground targets and also enemy aircraft and things like that, and they're shooting missiles at you to try to shoot you down. Um, the other game was you're basically a, a F-15 Eagle, and you're bombing everything. You know, it's a top-down view, and you're basically bombing targets there, and they're trying to shoot missiles up to, uh, you know, to, you know, have, you know, just basically have a AAA up there, and, you know, if you ran into either the missiles or the explosions they cause, it would kill you. So, yeah, it was, that was a one, that was a really good game. Uh, Mad Planets. Uh, this one I discovered in the uh, Connecticut Pulse Mall Arcade. Um, this one, I played it a little while. I never was really good at it. Um, but, you know, every once in a while, if I really have a hankering to play it, I'll go, you know, I'll just save it for a trip up to the arcade in Brighton because they have it. Um, but yeah, it was a really interesting game in a way. Um, Star Wars influenced, if you really want to be you really want to be honest about it it was really star wars influenced but you would have to really know your star wars to know that that's where it came from megazone this game my brother my you know my late brother edward he was this was his this was his game um a little bit of backstory i'll go even as far as ahead as 1985 um my brother has a job at one of the department stores in the mall and I'm still, I'm still hanging out in the mall at this point, even though it's 1985, I'm what, 16 going on 17, uh, my brother's 21 going on 22, and um, so every once in a while, 
I would see him, you know, in the arcade on his lunch break. And, you know, if he had it, you know, if I asked him, he would give me a couple of dollars if he had it to give. And the game he was always playing was Megazone. Um, it's basically a vertically, vertical, sometimes horizontal scrolling shooter where you're this tank and you're going through various levels with enemies and formations of enemies and so forth. And the trick is to build your firepower and your tank actually you can increase your tank size and so forth and you're basically destroying enemies and destroying um these bosses that are basically constructed like eyes you have to basically shoot them in the eye to destroy them but yeah that's one of, that's one of, that was his favorite game so out of respect to my deceased brother i give i give him that slot track and field now this came out in 1983 um, I think it was just ahead of the 1984 uh, summer games in Los Angeles. And so you had all the summer games that you pretty much know of. You had a, the 100-yard dash. You had the um, long jump. You had the javelin throw. You had um, the 110-meter hurdles. Um, you had the hammer toss, you had the high jump, and you, you know, basically, you had, you know, two buttons and the jump button, or jump or throw button, depending on what event you were in, and basically what it was is that everybody learned how to cheat by using a pen and various other instruments to use your middle finger as a fulcrum and your index finger sort to hold it in place and then you would just tap or you would tap or you would just use your grab it with your fingers and just use one button and of course as you're using that as a fulcrum when you pull it up the other side of the pen would hit the other button and you could run faster instead of using your fingers the only other the only person I ever saw who could actually play track and field with his hands and not use any sort of instruments was Mark. He had this way, he had this system where he would use two fingers, he would just use one finger from his left hand for the left button and two fingers on his right hand where he would just do this one-two action like really fast and he would be, he would actually get really decent speeds. <laughs> it was really interesting to watch. I mean, I'm like, how do you do that? You know, that only just showed how good of a player Mark was. His his dexterity was crazy back in the day. I was really envious of the dude. And finally, Cloak and Dagger. Um, this game is a one, you know, this game was fantastic. This was a game by Atari, and basically you're a spy trying to steal the plans, you know, and infiltrate this one base and uh, set and basically either steal the plans or destroy it there is a video on youtube where one guy i didn't even know you had to do this <laughs> this is how clueless i was i basically thought you had to just get just go as far into the game as you could i didn't know there was an end to it i really didn't and basically what it was is that you have to go down into this complex all the way to the bottom and then you have to steal the plans it's either that or you set a self-destruct something like that and then you have to go 
make your way all the way back up and out. And that ends the game. I didn't know that until I saw this video on YouTube of this one guy who beat the game. I was like, really? You could beat that? I didn't know. I never was good enough to do that. And neither was anybody else I knew, including Mark. As good as he was, he was not good enough to do that. But yeah, Cloak and Dagger, that's what it was. <laughs> um, okay, those are my top tens. Um, any comments, stories, you know, anything you have to say, please say it. You know, arcadeaddictbrian at gmail.com. And voicemails and social media. If you, if you got something to say, say it. That's all I gotta say. Alright. Let's see. We are gonna go on to story time. Our bodies are given life in the midst of nothingness. Existing where there is nothing is the meaning of the phrase form is emptiness. That all things are provided for by nothingness is the meaning of the phrase emptiness is form. One should not think that these are two separate things. Story time. A day in the life of an arcade addict. I'm going to use uh, 1984 as my example because depending on what year it was and what time of year in that year it was, it, it varied greatly. I mean, how I did my arcade things in 1984 was different than how I did them in 1982 and so forth and so on. But I'm going to use 84 as the example. Uh, summer of 84, I'm 15 years old. Um, and during the summer, I would spend, you know, a day, let's just make it a Saturday, just for argument's sake, um, from sunup to sundown like this. Um, from, I'd say probably, what, 7 in the morning until, like, noon, I'd stay home and watch Saturday morning cartoons. Um, in 1984, they were still decent quality, um, although the heyday had passed by, you know, 1983, you know, the year before. Uh, of course, have some breakfast and figure out what I'm going to do that day. Um, it all depends on whether it's an allowance week or not. Um, and if it was an allowance week, I would do it like this. Um, 12 to 1, I would go to the mall. Um, now, if I didn't have an allowance, I would walk it. You know, I would just, you know, see what spare change I can, you know, get from, you know, see what I can find around the house. And hopefully I could get a couple of dollars together and maybe my grandfather give me a couple of dollars. You know, maybe my mom can spare me a few bucks if it's not allowance week. Um, and depending on that, if it was allowance week, I'd take the bus. <laughs> just that simple. I would just go um, over to um, the local newsstand and get my comics, um, which were still cheap back then. They were starting to get expensive, but they were still relatively cheap. And that way I would be able to get... Um, I would be able to get bus fare, you know, you know, after breaking a $20 bill, of course. Um, then I'd go up to Trumbull Ball. Um, that's usually from 12 to 1. That's what I would do. Uh, from 1 to at least 5, I'd hang out the mall, uh, play games in the arcade, uh, walk the mall, 
check out stuff in the other stores you know uh, let's see I would check out stuff in the Woolworths uh, KB Toys um, of course I would go into Reed's department store because there they had a huge display for the electronic handheld games of the day and they had quite a few of them and I would play those if they had them turned on if I spent too much time there you know one of the cashiers or clerks would come by and turn them off you know by this time they knew who I was <laughs> you know I had built up something of a reputation in that mall um you know I would go to like you know like I said I'd go to KB KB Toys uh see if there's anything worth buying um I'm trying to remember what year it was I think it was 85 or 86 but that's how I would start buying uh start bolstering my Dungeons and Dragons collection of rule books and uh adventure modules because the price excuse me the prices came down really you know really greatly to where almost every adventure module you could ever want was a dollar at one point I just can't just can't remember what year it was I think it was 85 it's either 85 or 86 somewhere in there um let's see have you know go to the food court have some lunch you know I probably most of the time I would go to like uh orange julius get a hot dog and a, a strawberry julius uh go back to the arcade play some more games um if i had money left over i would either uh take the number 12 bus and go down to spanky's or if um mark showed up in the arcade um you know i'd ask him if he was going to milford wreck and if he was i i'd ask if i could go along with him or um or I would probably spend too much money which is most most times I had my allowance I would go through it inside of a day um I'd walk down I'd walk home from the mall coming down Main Street I'd go to Bolarama play a couple games there hang out there if Mark was working that day I'd you know ask him if he'd go into Milford Rec and if he was you know and he was feeling generous that day he'd let me tag along with him um so then I'd hang out at his, you know, hang out at Bolarama until he got out of work, and then, you know, we'd uh, go to Milford Rec or you know go to his, you know, go to his house or whatever. Um, you know, that was, you know, that was pretty cool. You know, Mark just certainly didn't have to tolerate me, but he did for some strange reason. I'm still not sure why, and I don't think he knows why either. You know, 30 years later, <laughs> um, from five p.m. until midnight that all depended on how things how things shook out um if mark was going to move for wreck and he would let me come with him i'd go with him and they would be there until closing most of the time especially um going from i'd say probably like 84 going into 85 and in the future they would go to Milford wreck to play pool um apparently they just get together and play pool for money and you know talk a bunch of junk i didn't care because i was there to play the games i didn't care so if i went with him there then i would just you know be there until you know they would stay till closing um then you know they go over to mcdonald's and get you know get something to eat and then they would you know go home mark would drop me off at home and then he'd go home um if i was going solo and i went to spanky's I'd just go down to Spanky's and just play until my money ran out. 
<laughs> you know, as silly as that sounds, that's what I did. Um, I would go home and just, you know, go home and go to bed. Um, depending on if I had the wherewithal to keep a couple dollars, I would just, you know, take the number 12 bus home so I wouldn't have to walk it. But there were some days I just went through all my money and I'd have to walk home from there. That's just how it was. And that would be my entire day from, you know, from early morning until, you know, late at night, depending on how it all shook out. So, yeah, that's how it was for me. Um, so, yeah, that was a day in the life of an arcade addict. You know, my day was pretty much planned around uh, which arcades I would go to. You know, that's how it was. I mean, especially in the summer. So, yeah, that's how it was. So, yeah, if you want to, you know, share your stories of similar escapades, just get a hold of me, arcadeaddictbrian at gmail.com. Okay, on to our last segment of the show. Time to use some strategy. What happened? Come with that tactics, Mr. Ryan. Time to use some strategy. Score. Beating the top 16 video games. Uh, this one was a book written by Ken Houston, who was a very well-known uh, gambler, um, blackjack player in, uh, Holly- in Hollywood, in Las Vegas. Um, I think he started writing this these books, or he started doing this after I think he more or less got banned from every, uh, got banned from every, uh, casino in Las Vegas at the time, but anyway, um, this is a book that was written in 1982, and this is something that I, this is a book that I actually have a physical copy of, but it's buried in my closet and I can't find it, so... Um, I was able to actually go on to the Internet Archive and someone actually scanned a copy into the into the actual archive, which is awesome. I love it. You know, this is great because this is exactly what I was looking for. Um, so he go so yeah he goes into he like I said with um. You know how to beat the video games, which I covered several episodes ago. Um, he breaks it down the same way, um, although he does it in a much more concise way. Um, he has the tips on how to become a good player and save your quarters, which is something in 1982 I was trying to do. Um, you know, basically, he would say uh, you would watch a new game for a while. That means watch it in the attract mode, watch other people play it, and just, you know, just watch it, you know, and, you know, he breaks it down, he says, you know, there's no way you can competently play a game cold, that is, just by walking up, plopping in a quarter and play, unless you have ungodly talent and really good, um, really good feel for a game, yeah, I tend to agree, 
you know, I mean, even a game as simple as Pac-Man, if you don't know what you're doing, you will not last very long. And that's how it was when I first started playing Pac-Man, so he he's pretty much correct. Um, let's see, you know, he's given tips on how to become a, a, a good player. Um, he's, he's talking about uh, Vegas Shock which means, you know, static electricity. You could actually make a game crash if you tried to put a corner in it, and that's true. There have been more than several times when I've walked in through an arcade that has a, a certain type of carpet that you build up static electricity, and as soon as you touch your quarter to the coin slot before you drop it in, as a matter of fact, I learned that, especially with Bally Midway machines, because they had metal coin slots. Most of the other games had plastic coin slots, although there were some that had metal. And one of the things that I've learned is that before you put the coin in the slot, hold it against the slot for a second. You know, just to make sure you don't crash the game. Because if you crash the game, then it's got to reboot, blah, 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 blah. And then, you know, if you drop your quarter in while it's rebooting, of course, it won't give you a credit. So, yeah, there's nothing you can do about that. Um, so, um, then he basically says, a player will, will not become an expert in a game until he can move the controls automatically, just like someone steal, steers a bike or a car. Uh, he has an almost subconscious knowledge of the layout of the board and the movement of the men and the enemy. Um because it takes in, of course, it takes you a while, it takes you repeated, you know, attempts and, you know, experimentation to become an expert at a game. Um, from there on, he uh, breaks down the, the games he's going to talk about in levels of complexity. Um, he has, a, uh, like, the low-complexity games are Pac-Man, Ms. Pac-Man, Frogger, and Make Tracks. Average is Donkey Kong, Galaga, Galaxian, and Centipede. Also, Tempest, Space Invaders, Kicks, and Scramble. Um, the high-complexity games are, you know, are games like Star Castle and Asteroids. Very high is Defender. And he actually has a column there of all these games where it has the number of controls. Like, of course, Pac-Man and Ms. Pac-Man only have as a control stick, so that's one. Donkey Kong and Galaga, they have a control stick plus a fire button. That's two. Um, Tempest has a dial, a dial, a fire button, and a super zapper button. That's three. Um, Star Castle has two buttons to turn your ship, one for the thrust and one to fire. That's four. Asteroids has five because it has those controls plus a hyperspace button. Very high defender is six. Control stick to move your ship up and down, a reverse button, a thrust button, a fire button, a smart button, a smart bomb button, and a hyperspace button. And of course, the highest is Stargate with seven. Control stick, reverse button, thrust, fire, smart bomb, hyperspace, and um, cloaking device. <laughs> so yes, that one is, a, yeah, that is very high in complexity. Um... He has a chapter on arcade etiquette, you know, and which is only common sense stuff. Be considerate. Uh, don't block the view of the player playing the game. If you're, 
you know, if you're trying to put a quarter on the machine, you know, so that you have next, make sure don't block his view, don't try to distract him, um, don't talk to him while he's playing, um, you know, um, don't, you know, don't touch the guy, don't brush against him or anything like that, I've done that too, you know, I've done that, and I've also, I'm almost got my lights punched out a couple times, and that's how I learned, so, and of course, if someone's about to put a quarter in and start a game, um, you just don't automatically put a quarter in behind him if you wanted to play doubles with him. You would ask him if, you know, if you wanted to play that. It's just common sense stuff, you know, and unfortunately I learned some of those those etiquette lessons the hard way um let's see then he gives a, an overview of each game how he breaks down the information that he's going to give he put, he uh, breaks it down as the basic objective the scenario um, novice good and expert scores controls uh, a description and diagram of the actual layout of the game board, the characteristics of the game, and beginning and advanced strategies, and also other versions of the game. So each game went through those eight criteria. And of course, you know, each one is a little bit different. Now, the best part about it was um, right after these, uh, you know, after he breaks down the. Um, you know the uh, you know the uh, you know the objective the eight part way, the eight part way he breaks these things down. He has a uh, these wonderful little uh, how should I say this uh, a video he calls them video graphs. Basically, it's a horizontal graph, although it's vertical in the book. But, you know, it's these graphs where you could actually tra track your um, scores in these 16 games. And, of course, he has um, an area where the scores are novice scores, then the good scores, then the expert scores. And, um, yeah, so he has different numbers for each one of these games. Um, like, let's see, let's take Defender as an example. Like, a novice score in Defender is anything between 1 and 5,000 points. A good score is between, what, 10,000 points and uh, 60,000 points. And anything expert is 100,000 points and up. So, and he would actually break that down in his descriptions of the games. And, you know... I mean, to me, this that was something that I thought was genius. That's something that he had that that Ken used to put in this book that he had over the other uh, how to beat the video games uh, books of the day that you could actually track your progress in a game. So you know, basically, so like I said, he goes through all of the. Uh, all of the, you know, goes through all of these games. He starts with Pac-Man. Um, you know, he said, you know, just as an example, uh, novice scores are one to 3,000 points, which is funny because I see that even to this day. Uh, good scores are from seven, or excuse me, uh, some experienced players 
can get seven to twelve thousand. Good players get thirty to seventy thousand. Experts can go to a hundred thousand and better. Real pros will turn the game over. Um, and even back then, you know, somebody had said someone scored as high as three three point one million points on on Pac Man, and so on and so forth. Um, then he had then they have an actual graphic of the uh, of the board layout, and he has it pretty much pretty much correct gives the scoring uh you know gives the scoring breakdown uh how you know um how many lives you start with when you get the bonus life and so forth and so on and you know it's really interesting and even has a uh a breakdown of what your score probably a reasonable score should be for each level as you go through the game um you know, of course, the you know, and he gives the maximum possible score for each board, but he also gives the reasonable score right next to it. So, you know, you weren't, you weren't really, uh, how should I say this? You weren't, uh, you didn't have the overwhelming need to try and make perfect scores because that's really hard on Pac-Man unless you know exactly what you're doing and then of course he gives like these advanced strategies which gives you um you know ways to get through these um maze get through the maze I personally didn't this is where I had to separate away from it in this game because it didn't really work that well it really didn't so it is what it is um you know, and again, for Ms. Pac-Man, same thing. Uh, Donkey Kong, you know, he breaks down each of the levels. Um, you know, and he even gives you the strategies for uh, the, the first couple of boards and so on and so forth. It's really, it's really interesting stuff. I mean, I love this book. This is one of my favorite strategy books because it's all, the, the information is all there and it's not, it's easy to digest and you find yourself if you keep reading this book and you're playing the games that he's talking about and describing it will show you you know you will actually show yourself getting getting better at the game and it's one of the best strategy books out there there's only maybe one or two of this era you know there are better strategy books now but and you can certainly go on YouTube and look at videos of these games and, you know, just kind of emulate what the, you know, what the player is doing. But we didn't have YouTube back in those days at the risk of sounding like, you know, sounding like an old man. But, you know, in these kind of books and uh, magazines like EGM and stuff like that, these were godsends when it came to getting better at some of these games because the some of these games just gave you such you know they didn't give you very much uh shall we say um leeway um i think with this book i think this is how i'm just as i'm talking i'm looking through this book i'm clicking through pages and i can see in this in this book i see how i got so good at, at galaga you know, and because it breaks it all down, it gives you all the strategies, you know, for how to do this, how to do that, and get your, 
perfect and get your and get yourself really really good at it you know at this at these games and he even goes to um you know he goes to defender he goes to stargate and so forth you know and it's really really a, it's a wonderful book and you should really look it up i mean um archive.org has it uh right now and you can actually look at an electronic scan of a, an actual copy of this book and it gives you really really good information if you're so interested in getting good at some of these games so yeah score beating the top 16 video games fantastic strategy book and you know one of my personal favorites always has been so um anything you know anything you you know you might want to add in you know in conjunction to what i said by all means get a hold of me arcadeaddictbrian at gmail.com and that i think is going to be that so without any i'm going to take a look at what's coming up in episode 11 and we've got a pretty jam-packed show for that one too this one i'll give you a bit of a a little bit of a of a, a just a little taste of what's coming um this episode is when uh basically a lot of a lot of changes in my life took place and i'll i'll just leave it at that there are a couple of uh there's a story time there too um there is uh and are you experienced for star wars and there is a segment for on the road as well so i've got quite a bit to do for that episode so i'm going to leave you with this one and until next time this is brian saying good gaming have fun out there au revoir this has been the confessions of an arcade addict podcast all music is provided by kevin mcleod you can find his music at incompetech.com if you wish to contact the show you can drop an email at arcadeaddictbrian that's all one word at gmail.com we also have a voicemail number for the show it is 734-743-2433 until next time this is the confessions of an arcade addict podcast